welcome, welcome back to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my old friend and college roommate, Sean Jones. Sean, how are you today? Well, howdy, Sam. You're very oh, lucky I didn't God. commit to the bit that I was going to be a full-on uh, Yosemite Sam stereotype for this book. But you just committed to it in the open. You basically did commit to the bit. You ruined You ruined. Well, the I don't have to keep going with it. I didn't ruin the opening. <laughs> You ruined it. You have the exact Fine. same Start corny. Over. No, we're not starting over. You have the exact same corny sense of humor that uh, my other podcasting partner, Steve, has, where every single time I introduce him, he's got to put on some voice uh, that mimics the thing, the movie we were just watching. By the way, that's Hidden Gems, a uh, movie review podcast. Um, anyway, Very smooth. so. Yeah, right. So anyways, um, so for today, uh, the book that we chose was my pick, and that was Lonesome Dove. So a little bit of backstory here. I'm a movie guy. For anyone who you know listens to this podcast by this point well knows, um, I've normally in my life read a bunch of nonfiction. In fact, for the last, I don't know, gosh, it must be at least 15 years now, I've almost entirely read nonfiction. And then, Sean, when you and I were talking about starting a podcast, and when then we decided to start a literary podcast, I started getting into fiction again um, because of you. And for this pick, the reason I picked Lonesome Dove, uh, quite frankly, is because I'm a huge, huge fan of the television miniseries uh, starring Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall. So I had already seen the miniseries, which is really in my top five favorite things I've ever seen in some ways. Um, Maybe not top five, but I think at this point in my life, it's one of the top five things I like to go back and rewatch because it's such comfort food for me. But because, you know, I'm a movie guy, I don't always feel the need to watch, to read something that the movie or TV show is based off of, um, I consider these things to be entirely different. Uh, however, that being said, and I want to talk about this with you for a little bit, Sean, and we may have discussed this before on the podcast, and if we have, and I don't remember that, I'm sorry to the uh, listeners out there, um, but I have a theory, which is that it's always better to watch the adaptation of a novel before you read the novel because if you like the adaptation or don't like it it doesn't really matter the novel can only add it can only like for instance let's say it's lord of the rings or lonesome dove and you go wow i love that usually what people do is when they love something they search out more content that is related to it so if you think about it that way you love lonesome dove you read the book all you're getting is more good lonesome dove right the book's never going to be worse than the movie or the tv show so it's still going to be good and you're going to get more of it. Sean, what do you think about this approach I have? Um, I, we did talk about this earlier on a previous one. I think for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. That's but I'm right. the exact opposite. If I start a movie, like sight unseen, I know nothing about the movie, and I see the words uh, adapted from the novel by so-and-so, I, nine times out of ten, will turn the movie off. And then if I, depending on how badly you want to watch the movie or miniseries, I'll go and get the book and read the book first. Because for me, I feel it's more important that I get to think of who the characters are, what the scenes look like, how the story is told using my imagination. My biggest example of this is I've seen A Clockwork Orange um, like way years back. And then only recently did I read the novel Clockwork Orange and I could not get any of the movie's imagery out of my head. I really felt like I was watching or reading a script of the movie. That's how ingrained uh, the movie became. It, 
I had no leeway to make up anything for myself. So I figured, why do I even have to read this book now, except to see the, the slight differences in the adaptation? So I do think you're right in the point that the book can only show you what it did better or what they changed. But I strongly still feel that I like reading the book and experiencing it through my lens of experiences before I have somebody else adapt it for me. But it's not always, you know, a deal breaker, uh, especially with this book, because it stays fairly true in the adaptation to the miniseries. I was looking for like the slight differences and I think you're more knowledgeable about it, but I think they got tons of it right in the adaptation. And I don't think they left much on like the cutting room floor. Did you get that feeling the same way too about the miniseries? Yeah, I mean, they a lot of the miniseries, they're directing directly lifting dialogue from the book uh, to its benefit, obviously, because the book is so well written, and we'll get into that. But one thing I think is funny is that, um, you know, you want your brain to be doing the heavy lifting, right, of essentially creating imagery. And part of the reason, Sean, that I got away from novels for so long is I think is because I've been such a movie guy my entire life. I've always had a hard time reading a book, a fictional novel, uh, that describes the way people look and the way scenery looks. I've never really cared, and I've always thought that is the most mundane part of reading. And part of the reason I got into nonfiction is because nonfiction never actually does that unless you're literally reading about, like, terrain of some place, right? If you're trying to, like, read about a specific desert. But usually it completely gets away from physical descriptions of characters and uh, and physical descriptions of scenery. So one thing I like about reading novels after I've watched the miniseries is I basically skim over. It's, like, weird. I do read all the words, but my brain completely stops interpreting um, physical descriptions of people and places when I'm reading a novel because I literally just immediately picture what the movie did and it just gives my brain like a uh, a break basically I just I'm not into doing that kind of heavy lifting because I'll be honest I don't find it important yeah um, and I, I do see where you're coming from there with like the landscapes and such because oftentimes if I'm reading uh, I read a, a book about the Australian outback and I was like, I have no familiarity with this place. So I'd go on Google Images and look up what like the area would look like at that time period just so I could feed my imagination something for it. And I, that's what I like. I like to piece together my own experience, interpretation of the story, rather than kind of getting it handed to me on a silver platter. And I think Lonesome Dove being it's like a straightforward melodrama lends itself very well to the episodic miniseries because essentially uh, you might argue with me I don't think this is a book about characters per se it's more important about the settings and the things that happen to them as they're trying to accomplish their goals did you, you know, get it, it, yeah I mean it's interesting that you mentioned that I mean let's for for starters let me give a very very brief uh summary of a book that is incredibly long and epic and dense and has like 104 chapters, right? So I'm going to do this as briefly as possible. It centers around two characters, Augustus McRae and Woodrow McCall. These guys are former Texas Rangers. They may have also been Confederate uh, 
soldiers slash veterans. I never really understood that part, whether or not they actually served in the Civil War, but they're definitely veterans of the Indian Wars. Um, They cleared out a lot of the tribes out of Texas, and when the book starts, they're running like a really broken down, uh, like, I guess, like, horse-selling trading company in some really small town in Texas called Lonesome Dove, where you get the, 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 uh, the, the essential, you know, impression that there's nothing in this town except for one bar, one prostitute, and their company, which is called the, uh, what's it called, Sean? The Hat Creek Cattle Company. The Hat Creek Cattle Company. So anyways, um, an old uh, friend of theirs um, named Jake Spoons, uh, and by the way, uh, the guy who wrote this novel, Larry McMurtry, um, hats off just for the names, right? Because the names are Yeah, there's some, great, there's some great nicknames in this. Yeah, so the guy, um, Jake Spoon, he comes back to Lonesome Dove to see his two old friends, uh, uh, McCray, Augustus McCray and Woodrow McCall, and he tells them that up north, is this state called Montana with all of this untouched land and that it's the most beautiful place in America and it's the last great unsettled place in America and that if they actually drive cattle up there, there's so much grass up there. like Because basically there's no cattle in Montana, so they haven't eaten all the grass yet. So essentially it's free cattle feed, right? And if they can just get the cattle up there, they can make a lot of money in Montana as well as settle uh, the last unsettled place in America. So what happens is McCraw, oh, sorry, God, th- these names are hard to say. Woodrow? You call him, uh, don't call him Call because he's, rep- he's referenced as the captain. I just know him as the captain. Okay. And then, so- you know, Gus. Captain yeah, and Gus are the two. That's old a good guys. idea. Um, captain and Gus. Now, here's the interesting thing: is they're both captains. Gus was also a captain, but we'll call Gus Gus, and we'll call the captain the captain. Uh, Mac- is his name McCall? Just call. Call. Yeah, yeah. So, so Woodrow will call the captain, and Gus will just call Gus. Even though they're both captains, this is very important. Uh, neither of them is the boss over the each, each other. Not in the Hat Creek Cattle Company, and not during the Indian Wars that they fought in. But anyways, these two guys agree to basically go to get a bunch of cattle, to actually steal a bunch of cattle from the border of Mexico where they live, and to drive it up north from Texas to Montana. So essentially the longest possible journey they can take in America to drive it up north and to get in various adventures as they go along their way and they take their friends. Uh, Sean, is that, is that a pretty, you know, decent summary of the plot? If I miss something? No, it's, it's decent because while a lot happens in this book, it would just exhaust us to try to get all the details. The way that I look at this story is it's, it's two big narratives. Like you have the A story, which is Gus and Call leading their cattle drive to Montana to be like, uh, yeah, to be some of the first people to settle it. And then you have the B story, which I believe follows around like Jake Spoon, because one of the main reasons that Spoon has returned to see his friends is because he's on the run from the law. Do you want to elaborate on that, Sam? Yeah, I think Jake Spoon isn't necessarily the B story. I would actually argue it is um, the guy chasing Jake Spoon. What was his name, Sean? Uh, July Johnson. All right, so so Jake Spoon is in Nebraska, I believe. He's gambling, and he gets a, like kind of like an, an altercation in a fight, and he shoots his gun off, and the bullet goes through like the like the wood grain of the bar that he's in, or maybe he's in the outside. I don't remember, but basically he gets in a fight. He shoots a gun off, and the bullet accidentally hits the town dentist, who happens to be the brother of the sheriff of that town, who's a really young kind of like 
hapless guy named uh, July Johnson. And the funny thing is, July doesn't even like his brother, the dentist. He doesn't even want to actually find Jake, who's basically run out of town at this very moment. But the entire town is pressuring him to do his job and expects him to arrest uh, Jake Jake Spoon just because it is his brother and he is the sheriff. But July would actually just rather stick around and dote on his new wife, who hates his guts. Uh, his wife is named Elmira. If this book has a villain, a true black-hearted villain, I actually believe it's her and not and not the other many villains that uh, happen in this book. If, if one of them has no irredeeming qualities, I believe it's uh, J- uh, July Johnson's wife, Elmira. So July Johnson ends up, and he's the main B story, he ends up trying to you know sort of go out on his own and find Jake Spoon, And at the same time, his wife, Elmira, the second he leaves, runs off so that she can find her former husband, um, a guy named D-Boot, which is just a ridiculous name. And to me, it's kind of like July Johnson. He's the main B-line, the main B story is this guy's travels first to find Jake Spoon and then to find his wife. Yeah, uh... So the reason I call it like Jake Spoon is the is the beeline because not only does he start that storyline, but he also starts the storyline of the town's prostitute, Lorena, because she falls madly in love with him. He promises her that he's going to take her to San Francisco and they follow along the cattle drive. And without getting, I guess, too far ahead, it just he inevitably ruins this woman's life. And Jake Spoon then goes off on his own tangent again. So like I said, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of branching storylines here. But I want to circle right back around to what you said about Elmira being the the villain. And I have to argue against that because if you look at the character of Lorena and the character of Elmira and compare them to because of the two, two of the three main women of the book, Elmira, I think, takes the silver medal for being the more noble person because she knows that she doesn't want to be with July Johnson, but she's the only one, like, she's never um, beholden to any man. She runs off on her own volition, and despite being, a, like, a single person who's also pregnant, manages to navigate, like, the treacherous uh, West and avoid, you know, all the awful things that would normally befall a woman traveling on her own. So I, I got to give props to Elmira for at least not being permanently tied to a man in any one, like, shape or form. She uses men to get from point A to B, but ultimately in the end, she's the only one that's making decisions for herself as far as the women in this novel go. Okay, so counter to your counter, uh, I think that the most die-hard feminist would have a very difficult time defending Elmira, especially because everything she does, the entire journey she takes along the book, is in service of finding a man. It's literally she has an obsession over her first husband, who, by the way, we get the sense doesn't have too much of an obsession over her. And in the pursuit of finding this man, she turns her heart cold to her children like this woman is a sociopath she has no feelings and i'm going to spoil a lot of things in this book guys so if you haven't read it 
good on you, but there's going to be tons of spoilers. She has no feelings towards her, uh, like, eight-year-old son who dies through the course of the book. She has no feelings towards her baby who she delivers and then eventually abandons. Like, in my opinion, Elmira, you know, she's borderline psycho. Um, But, Sean, before we just start, like, kind of, like, jumping into this, into the plot points of the different characters, let me just ask you a really basic question that I always like to ask anybody when we talk about something. And I think it's... It sounds basic, but I think it's the best thing to ask. Did you like this book? Oh, yeah. I think it's really hard. I mean, I don't think it's for everybody. One of the main things I want to talk about is this novel is like the idea of like a Western. And I mean, how much does it fit what you expect out of a Western? Because it's not quite the pony and rifle interpretation from like early Hollywood. And it's never quite... It's it always is kind of like gritty and realistic but it's always entertaining it moves along at a very snappy pace and as i mentioned before it's a melodrama it's just these characters experiencing things that happen to them in a very episodic manner it's kind of like a a game of thrones almost where you follow several different characters as they're all trying to achieve their own goals and just the the random scenarios that they seemingly get placed with Their paths cross, they get separated, they meet again. And I just kind of love that type of storytelling, especially when it's as tightly knit as this one. So by the end of this book, and it is a doorstopper of a book, I still had a smile on my face. And I finished it in about two days. So that really shows that I was, it's a, it's a page turner. Let me know, let me tell you something, people out there, do not attempt to read at the pace that Sean Joan reads. <laughs> You're not going to finish this book in two days. And if you try, something bad's probably going to happen to you. So Look, just, as long I, as you know how to change a catheter, you're going to be yeah, fine. The, just trust me. This, this two-day... The fact you read that book in two days is absurd. I don't think... I think if I literally just, like, tried to sit down and read that book for two days, it just wouldn't get done, even if I never took a break. Um, I want to sort of counter one thing you said about it just being a melodrama. And one of the things I always have a really hard time articulating when it comes to novels versus when it comes to movies is I have a belief that some things are objective and not subjective when it comes to quality and craft in the arts, right? Especially when it comes to movies. I I can say that's a good movie even if I don't like it. And I can pretty much explain why something is good because I can usually focus on the craft and explain how the photography was good and the you know the acting was good and the directing and, and even the writing. I have a harder time when it comes to literature. But what I want to say about this book is that once again, whether it's Dune or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and I think I'm going to actually be able to explain this slightly more articulately than I was able to explain about those books – is that Larry McMurtry, the author of this novel, is just a really intelligent writer. And one of the ways you can tell how intelligent he is, is he goes super deep into his character's thought processes, right? But the interesting thing about that, right, so when he's trying to describe people, especially a character as enigmatic as the captain, um, is he'll be explaining what is going on inside of the captain's head incredibly articulately and intelligently with like a real kind of like psychologist um, 
mind for humans, but at the same time, he'll never offer up any answers, right? So oftentimes the captain is driven by urges that he himself can't explain. And while the author, while Larry McMurtry, um, articulates those urges he never actually explains them he doesn't say you know uh, the captain was hit by his father as a boy which led to this kind of trauma that led to x y and z he never does that he what he kind of does is he writes what is literally the inner monologue of the captain's mind without actually offering explanation. And he does this for all the characters. And I think really great writers are able to do that, where they go super deep into a character without over-explaining them or um, providing answers for why they are the way they are. And I think that's what separates this book from kind of just basic plot-driven melodrama is because he's able to do that, because he's able to look at these characters with such a keen and in-depth analysis and eye for human psychology. And I'm not sure normal melodrama does that. Sean, did you pick up on that at all when you were reading it? Yes, and everything that you just credited to McCurtry as the writer and the the psychologist, I, I viewed it as very tedious because none of these, the only characters that change in this book are like Newt. Newt is the only person in the entire book that goes on to a change. And now that I think is very specific because all of the main players, uh, especially Captain and Gus, they are already set in their ways. We know that Captain is a workaholic. That's all he knows. He has no time for anything else. We know Gus is uh, competent as a soldier but he'd rather be lounging around drinking all day. He does heroic acts, but he does it in a very selfish, uh, selfish manner. And no other characters are really given, you know, much time to ruminate. Lorena kind of does, but eventually, halfway through the book, she checks out. Um, and to circle back to uh, with like Captain, where towards the end of the book, uh, here's another big spoiler. So Newt is a 17-year-old boy that Captain Call had fathered with a a prostitute in town. Uh, The prostitute's name was Maggie. She died, and the captain adopted Newt, took him on the ranch, but he refuses to acknowledge that he's the father, and he refuses to give Newt his last name. And everybody else on the ranch that works for them, they know that Newt is uh, the captain's son. And towards the end of the book, Captain is, uh, they finally set up the ranch, and yet the Captain is not spending any time on the ranch with the rest of the men. He's sleeping off, you know, by himself, as he usually does in a tent, and he's having these, like, long, repetitive thoughts. He's like, should I do it, or shouldn't I do it, and should I do it? And he's referring to, you know, owning Newt as his son. Uh, he does get some redemption, I think, when he eventually turns over his major belongings to Newt, like his horse, which has the greatest name in the book, Hellbitch, and his rifle and his watch, but he doesn't acknowledge him as his son. And he rides off, and Newt, in his mind, I think this is the most insightful thing that McCurtry puts in the book, is that Newt, after his father, Captain Called, rides off, Newt's like, well, I guess I better go to work now. That's all I have left for me. Like, Newt was holding out that the captain would acknowledge him, 
And when the captain left him, Newt essentially becomes another uh, copy of the captain. He's now going to be a workaholic, just like Call, and inherit all of his worst attributes. I think that's the most insightful thing, that the son is guilty of the father's sins. And he's burdened with, you know, the choices that Captain has made in his life. I think that is the best, most insightful thing you get from this. Everybody else, they're kind of one note, looking out for themselves or trying to achieve a goal. Um, I think maybe July Johnson comes a little bit closer. He has to go through a tragedy, but he's a broken man after that. And everybody else just kind of gets killed. Uh, so I don't see the depths of psychology that, that stood out to you. Um, I don't disagree and say it's completely devoid of it, but I feel that it's more of a melodrama where the characters are very one note, they're very staid in their ways in order for them, for the reader to anticipate and understand the actions and of how they react to the world around them, as opposed to, Oh, well, now they're growing as characters, which I think is more of a, a pure drama's forte. Did you have anything to counter my thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, I got many things. I got I got many things I'm going to say to all that. Um, the first thing is I do like when um, the author presents us with the inner monologues of characters that aren't actually presented as dialogue. So I think that's a big reason. If you, if you keep looking at the books I'm choosing, whether it's um, Dune or uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, or uh, Lonesome Dove, and I'm only kind of realizing this now as we're talking about it, is I'm realizing that I do like books where I get to hear the inner thoughts of the character. Um, and I feel that all three of those writers, uh, Frank Herbert, um, John Lacar, and Larry McMurtry, are really good at doing that. Um, the second thing I want to say, you know, uh, Sean, you and I, we both went to film school together, and there was kind of this this fast, hard, golden rule that characters have to change in stories, that they must go through something and then change. And one of the most um, profound experiences that happened to me as just a consumer of art and specifically stories, because I'm not a I'm not a consumer of paintings and sculpture. Um, that that's not my bag, baby. I like stories. I like stories, however I can get them. Was watching The Sopranos because The Sopranos I think did one of the most subversive things in the history of American storytelling, if not storytelling in general. Now I got to preface this with saying that I think The Sopranos is the best thing made in America like since the 1980s in, in regards to the arts. Um, I don't think there's a TV show or movie that has been better than Sopranos. And one of the things that the Sopranos did that was so subversive is it said people don't actually change at all. And if they do change, they change for the worse and not for the better. They're, instead of saying that you know stories have to be a character goes through something and makes a massive character shift, usually for the better, The Sopranos did the opposite. The Sopranos was like, people don't really change. They only make small progress, and oftentimes those small steps they make of progress are actually downward progress where they become more toxic versions of themselves. So I, I don't believe um, that 
all these characters in this book needed to change. The other thing I wanted to say about that, piggybacking off of that, is I don't believe because the captain and Gus don't change that they're one note. I don't think they're one note at all. I think they're very complex. It's just that their characters, um, you know, their fundamental character never changes in the book. They don't finish as different people from where they started. Now, I would argue that the captain is the only you know, slight uh, change that he has as a person is he becomes more questioning of himself. This was a guy who never questioned himself for any of his decisions. You get the idea, he, you know, he, he's not the deepest thinker. And by the end, he does slightly start examining his own thought process and how he makes decisions. And I also think that uh, psychologically, that's a far more accurate and astute um, development for a person in general rather than just kind of being like, I was a real selfish prick and now I'm a selfless like hero. I don't think people are that way at all. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I wanted to say about these two characters and about the book in general, because we haven't really discussed them, but in, and you did give um, a good summary of them, but I want to go kind of broader than that. Um, like you said, the captain is a stern, all-business workaholic, and Gus is a fun-loving, um, really, philosopher. He's a philosopher. All he does in the book is philosophize, and I don't think that's a word, but I like it, and I use it often. Um, and I want to make a point here. When I was reading the book and I was looking at these two characters, the fun-loving, not hardworking, but really artistic philosopher Gus versus the stern, you know, constant energy and motion, hardworking captain, is to me they kind of represent society in general and what you need in society. You need the artist. And when I say artist, I don't just mean the creator of art. I mean the person with an artist's uh, perspective on life, whether it's philosophy, um, politics, you know, or just the general examination, the person who examines how they're living while they're living in that moment versus the energy of the doer. The doer doesn't have time to constantly sit around and examine life and how it ought to be lived because they're too busy doing. And the way I kind of looked at these characters is that without, you know, without the doer, the artist has no time nor luxury to actually think about their life. They need doers to be doing. And at the same time, life isn't worth living if all we do is work, right? We need the work, but we need somebody to basically say to us, while we're working, we should remember why we're here to begin with, why life is worth living and why we work so hard um, to, uh, you know, to stay alive. What is the purpose of staying alive if not to examine what being alive is really about? So I kind of look at these two characters and I think of them as, as really representations of, uh, of society and not the bad parts of society, but the good parts and what we need. Sean, when you were reading the book, did that kind of, um, did, did you see these characters as like larger archetypes at all? I I do. Um, and that's to say that you know, you do have the industrious Captain Call on the one hand, and you have, you know, Gus, the, the self, he's a self-described philosopher, and he's, he's actually a windbag. Uh, do you remember that he, because he does appreciate the arts, like he wakes up every morning at like the crack of dawn, and he reads in his Bible uh, on the Hat Creek Cattle Company sign. At the very bottom, he writes an inscription in Latin. That he copies from a book, how in order to you know fancy the place up, and he likes lording over everybody. That he he was clever enough to write Latin on the sign, but 
he doesn't himself know what it means. It's like it's like a farce almost. And he really just wants to, you know, sit in the sun all day and drink. And then when the night comes down, he wants to go play cards and, you know, sleep with Lorena, Lorena, the prostitute. He and when you say about society, there's one point that stuck out that if Gus's character had any depth to it, it's when the two men are riding along and Gus is questioning Call about what they did when they were fighting, uh, fighting in the Indian Wars and you know, making it safe for everybody else. Were they doing the right thing? Because Gus figures that the people that they're making it safe for is the bankers and the big businesses and everything that kind of drains the land of its like natural rustic vitality. And Gus starts having a, are we the baddies kind of moment, I believe, <laughs> in my opinion. Do you want to tell like, people what that's a reference to? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a great uh, uh, British sketch comedy show called The Mitchell and Webb Look, where two men who are Nazis <laughs> are questioning whether or not, are they the bad guys in the war? Uh, it's hilarious. You, you should, everybody should Google it. But Gus is really having that kind of like brief moment of reflection that maybe the drive out west, maybe that whole manifest destiny, Warhawk era mentality of America at the time, maybe they're like beneath that golden dream of it. There's actually like a very bitter ugliness. Not only did they drive the native peoples off the land, but they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And that's what struck me that made Gus a little bit more of an empathetic character. I still think he's a windbag. And here's my thoughts. What do you think at the bottom of it was Gus, like eventually at one point, Lorena gets kidnapped by uh, Blue Duck, which is uh, one of uh, McCree's and Captain Call's like arch nemesis. And Gus rides off alone to go rescue her. Now, Sam, what do you think Gus's motivations? Do you think they were noble in trying okay. to go and get Lorena? Well, before I answer that question, I have to mention something at the risk of insulting you, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, I find your take on Gus super interesting. And by the way, what I'm about to say to you also applies to me. Because if you and I were characters in this book, there is no question we would be the Gus character. Especially you, like... Like, it's just really funny because, like, I see, and I think I see Gus in a far more flattering light than you do, but I see so many similarities between you and Gus. So I do find it interesting uh, that you're so hard on him. Uh, oh, yeah. It was like looking into a mirror. That's why I can take him down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right. So to answer your question, yes, I do think that his pursuit of Lori is noble. Um, and I think that's largely supported by everything that occurs after he rescues her. Just a little, uh, also a little bit of information. Blue Duck is an American Indian who is kind of like the most notorious outlaw in the region. He he kills and rapes and kidnaps anyone he comes across. Um, he seems to be entirely uh, morally uh Devo I guess he's devoid of any morality. Um, but anyways, the reason I think it is noble that he goes after her, and I do see Gus as less of a windbag than you do, is because once he rescues Lori, um, she becomes extremely attached to him. She sees Gus as the only person, basically on Earth, who has her best interests in mind. And 
she starts to offer him what she calls pokes, which are which is basically sex because she was a prostitute, and she she she, she tries to offer him sex. And this was a guy who's had sex with her lots of times and has paid for it, but he will never accept it after he rescues her um, because he knows it would actually be taking advantage of her. I see both the characters, the two main characters in this book, as in, as very noble people with their flaws. And, you know, when you were talking about when I called Gus the artist, I don't mean an artist who actually cares about art or makes art. I just mean the person, you know, maybe I should have substituted the artist with the philosopher. I just mean the person who constantly questions life and kind of narrates life as it goes. But I, to answer your question, I think it was entirely noble. I think he's a very noble character. I think that he's by far the most popular character in the book. I, I you know, I think that... The last third of the book focuses on the captain, and it kind of has to because if the last third of that book didn't focus on the captain, the captain would so clearly be the secondary character to Gus. Um, It's really interesting that that book closes on the captain because while I was reading it, I became even more aware of how much uh, the book centers around Gus. Okay, well, follow-up question. So later on in the book, uh, when Gus is, he, they make it to Wyoming, Gus is off scouting by himself, and he blunders in to a, a group of Native Americans who immediately attack him. Uh, he's, he's wounded in the, in the fight. He does make it back to a town, uh, but when the, the doctor explains to him he's going to have to amputate both of his legs, Gus refuses it. He would rather die to... I, you can look at it one way. He does have a point. Nobody wants to be a, like a, a entirely uh, legless person in the old West. But at the same time, he knows that Lori is still waiting for him and does depend on him. But his choice to die out of kind of, I don't want to call it vanity, but that was, that was the uh, actual and literal nail in the coffin for my uh, judgment of Gus's character. I, do you think that choice was right? Do you think he should have accepted the amputation so he could go back and help out Lori? Or did it always have to be that way? That well, Gus's starters, you got it wrong. ego couldn't... For starters, you, you, got it, you got it wrong. Lori, by that point, and we haven't even talked about this other character yet, was with Clara. Gus had dropped Lori off essentially forever um, to live with his long-lost sweetheart, Clara. So by this point in the book... Uh, Lori's not depending on him. Lori has kind of a new protector, and that's Clara. So he doesn't have to go back to Lori. They're already basically, they're almost in Montana by the point this happens, and they've dropped Lori off. Now, what you call vanity, and by the way, uh, Call calls vanity, the captain calls vanity when he finally finds Gus at the doctor's office, and Gus has refused to have uh, both of his legs amputated. Um, what I would I would call it dignity. you got to realize this guy was a captain. Gus was a captain in you know, the United States Army in the Indian Wars, and he's had, despite all of sort of his jovial nature, he's only ever had people look up to him and depend on him in different ways. So there's no way he would allow himself to lose that position that he's maintained long in his life to have to depend on other people when people have constantly depended on him. And one of the really interesting things about this book, and specifically the character of the captain, is the captain is kind of chiding him for his vanity and being like, I can't believe you'd rather die 
uh, than lose both your legs. But if the situations were reversed, the captain would have even less thought about it. There's no way the captain would allow himself to lose both his legs because then he really would lose. You know, the captain's a person who values his self-image way more than Gus does, but Gus values his enough to not allow himself to basically rely on people to get him around from point A to point B. I mean, imagine living without two legs, and there's no way the captain would have made any decision that was any different. So, no, I I think his decision did not lessen uh, my esteem of him at all, especially because um, he was willing to live on one leg. They first amputate one leg before they don't amputate the other, and he was gonna he was gonna live on one leg. I think living without two legs, uh, you know, especially back then, you know, I don't blame him one bit for for saying the party's over, which I think he literally says, and you know, just mm. dying. Well, I, I think I completely agree with you about with Captain. If Captain had to get both his legs cut off, that means he couldn't work. That means the only sole reason that the captain wakes up every morning was taken from him. I'm absolutely 100% with you on that, that the captain would just just as easily let himself die. But in I think backing my point, when Gus refuses the amputations, he's at this point, he's, all, he's admitted to himself that he has no future with Laurie, but he does want to have a life with it's Clara, right? No, no. What's that's the, no? The what's thing. what's he's, the name of the, the former lover? It's Clara. It's but Clara. The point, the, but the point is, he's already visited Clara, and he's already accepted that he has no future life with her. This is really important. Like when he leaves Lori at Clara's, they visit Clara, and he leaves Lori at Clara's. He determines from that point on that he has no future with either of them. That you know, the truth is, he was never going to love Lori, and whatever love he had for Clara, he still has it, but the opportunity is gone. It's just, he's not going to be able to recapture uh, or correct the mistakes he made in his younger years by not marrying Clara. So by the time Mm -hmm. he leaves Clara's ranch um, and heads up north, in a lot of ways, he's got nothing else except call. I mean, and, and the ranch itself. So in my opinion, his decision, he's kind of decided, he's like, you know what? He's like, I was never going to have a life with Clara. I definitely wasn't going to have a life with Lori. Now I'm losing both my legs. You know, this is a guy, like I said, I think it's really important. You know, these guys were captains. And there's a great scene in a bar where a bartender treats Gus rudely. And Gus, like, breaks his nose in three different places. Not because the bartender was rude to him, but because the bartender was rude to a, a captain in the United States Army. I mean, these two guys, these two characters... They really value um, the respect that they have commanded all their lives. So I think by the time Gus dies, in in many ways, he's already died a little bit before that point. Once he's realized that the biggest mistake he ever made in his life, which was not marrying this woman, Clara, who's a major part of the book that we will talk about uh, soon. But by that point, that the opportunity to right that wrong, it's over. So I really don't see him as having much left outside of the ranch itself. Well, and I can see that point. At this point, that Gus is choosing between going and helping Call set up the ranch, or an option that I don't think he ever considers is, is that he could have a very comfortable life with Clara, with Lori, on Clara's ranch. And 
he could do what he likes to do the best at the ranch house, which would be drink and talk and hear himself talk all day. The fact that he doesn't even consider going back and, you know, you know, keeping himself alive, even though he's not going to be able to be uh, physically respected anymore, but that he could be like the paterfamilia of this little group that he that doesn't even cross his mind is, I, I think, the biggest deficit. And Clara actually calls it out because doesn't Clara say something along the lines to the captain that the two men, Gus and the captain, have ruined each other because they don't see any options besides being miserable with each other? Yeah, she does say that. However, we, you know, you failed to point out that Clara has spent the last, like, what, three years caring for a comatose husband. Uh, her husband got kicked by a horse in the head, and she's been caring for him for, like, three years. And, you know, I think you're skimming over the, like, kind of like the old, what would now be not only antiquated, but really politically incorrect notions of manhood. But these guys got it. Those notions, these guys have it. And Sean, like, I'm married. If I lost my legs tomorrow and my wife had to, like, you know, help me go to the bathroom, help me wipe my ass, help me take a bath, that would take a huge hit to my dignity and my vanity. You know, you want your, whether it's your friends, your colleagues, um, your neighbors, your significant other, your children, everybody wants to be seen in a certain way. And this is a guy you know, uh, uh, Gus and the captain, but both these guys, they have been seen in a certain way their, you know, for their entire adult life. And he is not going to allow himself to be seen in any other kind of way. And he's definitely not going to allow Clara, who has just finished uh, taking care of a comatose husband for the last three years, now have to take care of him. Having two legs is not, I mean, sorry, having no legs is not something you can just get around. There's a huge, there's an exponential difference between having one leg versus having no legs. Like, it is not 50-50. Having yeah. one leg, you can do certain things. Having no legs, there is so much more you can't do having no legs than just having one leg. Um, but before we keep beating this point to death, uh, which is what we're doing right now, I want to bring something <laughs> up. Um, I was reading an oral history of the novel and the miniseries from, I think, of all places, like the Dallas Times. Um, and one thing I found really interesting is that Larry McMurtry apparently wrote this book to be a gritty D. When you de he wanted to demythologize the old west. He wanted it to seem gritty. He wanted these people to seem brutal, and he wanted the whole thing to seem unromantic. Okay, and then the mm -hmm. miniseries comes out, and the miniseries largely revives interest in the old west because that had basically been dying out since the '60s. Like my father, who was born in the '40s, everything in TV and radio was the old west. But by the time you got to the '80s, it was basically done. Like you know, they, nobody was making uh, that kind of stuff unless it was like you know, um, I don't know. There was some like really corny TV show that was once on. But for the most part, that old western mythology had really died out, and the miniseries completely romanticizes everything. And what I found really interesting about this, because Larry McMurtry has decided to take on the the kind of, uh, I don't know what you call it, the grumpy author's tale, which is like, I don't like how people view my book, because it was supposed to be viewed as a gritty, like, anti-Western, and everybody thinks it's a glorious, romantic Western. But when I was reading the book, Sean, I kind of 
read it romantically. And maybe that's because I had seen the miniseries first and there was just no getting around that for me. Like because the, the miniseries is so romantic, I couldn't help but read the book romantically. But when you were reading the book, did you read it in the way that Larry McMurtry states that he intended it to be read? Or did you see it as a romantic, uh, another romantic myth? Mythologization? God, boy, I'm. If I'm making up, I think I'm on a roll <laughs> making up words today. I'm, I'm, I'm hitting on all cylinders here. But did you read it that way? Which way did you read it? Yeah, Merriam-Webster's got to contact you. You got a lot of great words you're making up today. <laughs> um, the only part that I think is utterly and un, <laughs> unapologetically romantic is Gus's decision because he wants to go out on his shield. He's doing a Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. That he wants to be left to die, and I just, I, I just think that's the only wrong move thematically that McMurtry makes in order to try to make the book gritty, because the whole book, everything is trying to kill you out in the West, uh, whether it be snakes in a river, whether it be lightning storms. You know, hostile Native Americans, hostile bandits. Everything is just straight out, flat out, trying to kill you. If anything would ever deter me from using my time machine to go back in time to experience this life, I would just have to reread. Do you remember the chapter where, from Newt's perspective, they have to ride through a a storm of locusts? Yes. And there's, like, locusts covering him from head to foot in the saddle and he actually is like choking on them like despite how many like he knocks off of them there's just locusts crawling into his like and anywhere they can get in that to me is medieval levels of like personal body horror and the fact that if you you know if a snake scares your horse you could end up with a broken neck uh the the main enemy the main villain to me is the wildness of the West. Just the the thousands of ways that will, you know, question your ability to survive on a day-to-day basis. The people can be brutal, but the weather and the wildlife are so indifferent. And I think the best example of this is towards the end of the book, one of my favorite parts is the fight between I think it's a a bull a bull cow fights a grizzly bear. Do you remember that part? That was one of my favorite parts of the book. I sure do. And then like like the cattle like gets left behind because he can't make it, but then he catches up. Yeah, and like that is the most triumphant part of it. Like they have to stitch him back up, but they're like, "Eh, if he can't keep pace, he's probably going to get, you know, become vulture food." Uh it, so that it, it's just that kind of the hard decisions you have to constantly make to like look out for yourself and get ahead, I think far exceeds Elmira's coldness and far like maybe Blue Duck can match it just because he's so um, he doesn't care one way or the other as long as he's getting ahead. Uh, I, I just think that that is really truly gritty. There's no punches pulled. It gets to like almost a comical body count towards the end, and everybody. I think I mentioned this at the very beginning. Nobody really makes it out, you know, doing well for themselves. Like everybody is kind of broken in one way or another after the events they experience going out west. 
So I think if you're going to make an anti-tourist, oh, things were so great back then in the, the Golden West where man has his freedom, just look at any number of characters from this book and see what happened to them. And like that'll demystify any notions you have of the Old West given One to you that- by like John Wayne. Yeah, one thing that really pisses me off, though, about Larry McMurtry is here this guy is. He's won a Pulitzer Prize for his novel. His novel is beloved through the decades, right? And he has the gall to basically be dissatisfied with how people love the novel. I just find that so pretentious. It really pisses me off. I And also, I think that if you read his... Like, how could this guy be writing the dialogue that he writes, which is so snappy and witty, and be thinking to himself, yeah, this is so gritty. Like, it's not gritty dialogue. It's incredibly fun, loving, uh, witty dialogue. And the book has such a epic sweep of adventure to it. I don't see how he could have um, intended... If he meant for this book to be gritty, I think he largely failed... Um, and it's well, funny because he struck this, gold in, in its romanticism. I mean, all this sweeping adventure you describe, there is a wonderment when they finally make it out of the desert and, you know, get back to where it's like snowing. Some of the men never seen snow before. But in the day-to-day activities, there's no way. Like, I think you and me, with our modern minds, there's no way that we could survive back then. Like oh, even if not. we even if we had like a survival book, if we went back in time and tried to do that journey with a, everything available to call and Gus, uh, like we'd be dead in 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 days, if not. Sean, I couldn't live in my backyard for forty eight hours. I would die. <laughs> like there's no question. Yeah. yeah. So and and yeah, the dialogue. I mean, Gus talks up a storm. Occasionally, he you know he manages something that's witty. Uh, but there's never any really like lighthearted things that go along. Like the main thing they did for fun was play a game called Mumbledy Peg. Do you ever? Did you look up the like? What does that mean? No. It's a it's a game where you drive a wooden stake into the ground, and then through some it doesn't go any further into details because apparently there's tons of different versions of it. But the person that loses has to pull the wooden stake out of the ground using their, their teeth and mouth. That's what they did for fun back then. <laughs> like, how do you romanticize that? <laughs> okay, so one thing I want to bring up is Blue Duck. Um, I found Blue Duck to actually be a fascinating character because even though he's so devoid of morality and everything he does, I mean, he inflicts so much harm on other people. One thing that he shares in common with uh, Gus and the captain is that they're all after the same thing, which is freedom. That's what these guys want more than anything else. It's why Gus uh, you know, won't settle down. It's why the the captain will always do what he wants and look for new places that are untouched. And it's why Blue Duck will basically rape, murder, steal, cheat, kidnap whoever he wants. All these guys are after unvarnished freedom. And there's a great mm-hmm. moment at, at the end of the book where Blue Duck has finally been captured, and he talks about everything he's gotten to do up to the point he was captured and how nobody could touch him. And what's really interesting is that Blue Duck, while a completely evil character, is also a noble one. He has a dignity to him, even though he's a piece of shit, right? Like this guy 
has been living his life on his terms despite the risks um, because he has been chasing the same kind of freedom that these two other guys, who, by the way, have instilled uh, pain and suffering on other people as well. You know, they're not angels. They have... They have, you know, taken out entire tribes of people. So I, I thought it was really interesting how basically they're really the same kind of person, but on the diff- not only on different sides of the law, but also notions of how they want to live, but they're still chasing the same thing, which is freedom. Sean, did you pick up on that at all? Oh, absolutely. Um, because Blue Duck, um, he, uh, for being as brutal as he can be and as— uh, unthinking and doesn't he'll kill a child just as quickly as he'll kill an adult he does seem to have a code and he when he captures Lorena it's not so he could rape her or take advantage of her it's because he's going to sell her and then after that when he spends time in the camp of the men that he sells her to like he watches her literally have the worst time in anybody's life could possibly have and his he's like I don't care and then he proceeds to win her back off of the people he sold her to, like via dice. And he's like, yeah, I want you back. And he's like, not to sleep with you, but he wants to go sell her again, probably to another group so he can once again get ahead. The way that he looks at people is like a commodity that he'll trade them. And that's in order for him to keep his freedom. And I think it's funny that you mentioned that that Blue Duck and you know Gus and the captain are kind of the same people because in the book it's directly addressed that Gus and Jake Spoons are just a, a hair's breadth from being on the wrong side of the law that they consider Gus and Spoons to be like almost the same type of person but Spoons just goes a little bit too far on the wrong side of the law and the captain calls Gus out on that like so at one point they're like condemning what Spoon's doing because he falls in with a bad crew, and the captain's like, when they have to catch up with Jake and eventually hang him for his crimes, captain's like, that could just as easily been you, Gus, at any point in time. Uh, yeah, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, there's something really important here, right? Which is that when they finally catch Jake, who has who has been traveling with a group of murderous outlaws and keep in mind Jake has not murdered anybody with this group and he very much regrets uh, going along with this group he thought he was just going to rob banks with this group but it turned out that the leader of the group uh, was psychotic was what would have been a modern day serial killer today but once um, once Gus and the captain catch up uh, with Jake and they kind of put him on a horse they string him up and they're going to hang him Gus says to Jake he goes, I'm sorry you crossed the line, Jake. He goes, you know, he, he, well, actually, what he actually says, he goes, you know the rules, Jake. You ride with an outlaw, you die with an outlaw. And he goes, I'm sorry you crossed the line. And then what Jake says back to uh, Gus is, I didn't see no line, Gus. I was just trying to get through the territories with my scalp. And that's really important because despite their similarities, Gus knows the line when he sees it. It's crystal clear to him, but Jake didn't see it. And that's why Jake is about to have a horse kicked out from underneath him while attached to a rope by his neck. And Gus is the one going to slap the horse because Gus Mm -hmm. sees the line and Jake doesn't. So while they're similar, I don't think it gives enough credit to Gus. Um, I think Gus has a very clear moral compass. The thing about these guys is that they're both scoundrels. That's what they are. They're scoundrels. But unfortunately for Jake, his 
scoundrelness comes without um, critical thinking. He doesn't have the wherewithal to know, you know, when being a scoundrel is charming and when being a scoundrel will end up getting you hanged. But Gus knows it, and that's the difference. Gus is a charming scoundrel, and Jake is not a charming scoundrel at all. I mean, even before Jake joins up with this crew, he really turns and he keeps becoming more and more of a piece of shit as this book goes along. He takes Lori with him, then he abandons her, and that's what allows Blue Duck to catch her. And in fact, right before he's about to get hanged, Gus says to him, he goes, he goes, by the way, Jake, I just thought you'd like to know we got Lori back. And if you want to know how cruel and callous and self-centered Jake is, he just goes, who? He doesn't even remember her. Yeah. It's just crazy. So I think Gus deserves a little bit more credit than, you know, him and Call. They're, they're basically man and wife. They bicker. Now, Sean, I have a really important question for you, and I would really be upset at myself if I forgot to ask you this before the podcast was over. Throughout this book, Larry McMurtry invents characters who he keeps around for, like, maybe, you know, uh, 10 to 12 chapters, and then he kills them off. And I have this theory that he just grows bored with them, that when he started writing this book, he had no idea where it was going. He didn't know what the next chapter was going to be. He kind of just took it as he imagined it. And then he'd invent characters and then just kind of like lose, like have no use for them anymore. And then he would just kill them off. Did you feel that way at all when you were reading this? Yes, because some of my favorite episodes uh, throughout this, uh, this novel uh, include the side characters. Like three of my favorite characters were, were complete side characters. I loved uh, Janie, the girl that gets, uh, that starts following Roscoe, uh, uh, july johnson's uh deputy like hapless deputy and she's like completely at home in the wilderness she saves roscoe from getting killed by hucking rocks at their attackers and ultimately she meets her end at blue duck's hands but the entire time she's involved in roscoe's story i was like i want to know more about this Janie girl and when she uh, met her end i was genuinely disappointed that we didn't get more time with Janie. And then speaking of Roscoe, Roscoe, there's one part which I don't believe is in the miniseries where he's traveling, you know, to try to find July Johnson and he comes across a woman and the woman is doing uh, like the man's work of like pulling a, a tree stump out of the ground. Roscoe goes to help her, but he's kind of inept. He almost cuts his foot off. And then at dinner, the woman propositions him and she's like, hey, how about instead you give up your ridiculous chase because you're going to get yourself killed and you just, you know, live here with me. I'll teach you how to farm and you'll be like my husband. And uh, Roscoe's like, uh, he's very uncomfortable around women. So he decides he's going to sleep outside in the night. And in the morning when he wakes up, the woman comes out and sexually assaults him. Do you remember <laughs> this episode? I do remember. Where, like, she like kicks him awake and then like straddles him. And then he runs for the hills because he's ter he's more terrified of this woman than what's waiting for him out in the west. And then uh, my last like character that gets introduced and you know disposed of is the the cattleman Wilbarger, who is the only one that's sharp enough to keep up with Gus's banter. As a matter of fact, he knows what Gus wrote on the sign in Latin, but Gus you know Gus doesn't. But nonetheless, Gus and Wilbarger respect each other. And then later on, Wilbarger gets attacked by Jake Spoonie's gang. And uh, 
Gus catches up with him, sees, and I think the captain finds Will Barger dying. And Will Barger's last request is, I want to talk to Gus because I don't want to die without having one last good conversation. And I was like, oh, that, that really sucks. And it's it, you're exactly right. They brought him in to kind of start off the, uh, the main plot because he's looking to buy cattle. And then in the end, it's just like, okay, well, I guess we have to kill him now, but he'll have a nice moment with Gus. Okay, so let me ask you another question. In a book... In a book full of characters who I think see themselves as noble, who do you actually think is the most noble character in this book? Um, I would have to say, and this is me upping the zany factor, but I really liked the character of Poe Campo, the Mexican cook oh. that they, they pick up, because he knows exactly what he's about, and he has his own code, and he's the only one that doesn't get involved in any violence, except when he remarks that he killed his wife and yeah, sent her right, to hell he where killed, she belongs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as like uh, you know, and he like he knows he knows good like hangover cures. He's like the he's the camp cook, but he knows his business inside and out. That's all he wants to do is cook, and he's a great cook. He actually offends Gus by how good of a cook he is. And, uh, yeah, I think that's my silly, zany answer. As far as noble characters, I guess you have to give it to to Captain, even though he does, you know, he doesn't do the ultimate right thing personally. He still goes through with his friends, like, ridiculously, like, ridiculous last dying request and puts himself through, like, another hell by himself. But, you know, his word is bond, and he's going to carry through. Who, who are your votes for the noble character? Okay, for starters, I just want to say something about Poe Campo and the intelligence of the writing in this book. Poe Campo has one of the best kind of like introductions where you really understand what this guy's about, which is uh, basically he's agreed to to sign on as the cook for this company that's traveling to Montana and they offer him a horse to ride with the company and he won't do it and they ask him why and he goes how would you like it if the horse rode you so the entire journey to Montana he does on foot he refuses to ride a horse and yet the author's smart enough to follow up this kind of very noble self-sacrificing uh, philosophy by having him also be a wife murderer right he's no <laughs> yeah. angel um, and I think that was really intelligent of him because you've got a guy who, if it wasn't for the fact he murdered his wife, he'd be almost unbelievable. But him murdering his wife, you got to be like, oh, yeah, I love this guy, but he did murder his wife, and you're not entirely sure why. Um, now, I think the actual most noble character in the book is obvious, Sean. I think it's Clara. So Clara, we haven't really talked oh, okay, about. Yeah. yeah, she is. She was the love of Gus's life. Um, they were They were sweethearts when they were younger. Gus proposed to her many times. She turned him down many times because she said that every time she turned him down, she saw the relief in his face, which made her know that he didn't really want to get married, even if he thought he did. But Clara lives on this ranch. She's lost three sons, uh, all to like fever and disease. She takes care of her kind of idiot husband, who she kind of like views as like he was a good husband, but she clearly didn't really love him. But at least he was like a man who was willing to like stay, settle down, have roots, take care of a family, even though he was like kind of an idiot. But he's been hit by a, a horse on the head. So she like 
tends to him every day, like wiping his butt, turning him over. I mean, just like the, just the most tedious kind of like nursing. Um, she takes in anybody who needs help. Like people, every single character in this book comes across her ranch at one point, whether it's Elmira, July Johnson, uh, Gus and, and the captain. I mean, every single character in this book, she delivers Elmira's baby and then keeps it when Elmira abandons it. She keeps the baby to raise. Then July Johnson comes. She informs July that this is actually his baby. It's his son and that she wants to raise the baby. And if he allows her to do it, she'll also allow him to stay. Um, eventually, another character, one of the top hands uh, for the company, his name is... Um, what's what's the like top washy. hand name? It's like dishy, because he, dish, he drank dish. dish. Yeah, it's dish. It's dish. Um, so the top hand of the company, once they actually get to Montana, this character Dish, and Dish's main character trait is that he's just in love with Lorena, who's not in love with him. So he he knows that Lorena's at Clara's house, so he goes to Lorena's house, and then Lorena, or not Lorena, I mean Clara's house, and then Clara hires Dish to be one of the guys working at her ranch. I mean, and then at one point, I think is one of the most telling uh, parts of the book, one of the last things Gus says to her is... Um, She's she's basically asking Gus to stay before he leaves. Uh, Clara is basically saying, "Why don't you live here with me, Gus? And we can sort of, we can you know, we can kind of pick up where we left off." And Gus tells her, "He's like, no, I I want to go to Montana, see this unsettled land, and and settle it." And she goes, "Well, there's plenty of unsettled land here in Nebraska." And he says to her, "He goes, he goes, no, Clara. He goes, I imagine since you're here, in one year, this entire land will be full of schoolhouses." And that's like a that's like a huge compliment. He knows mm-hmm. what type of person she is. She's just going to go out of her way to educate children and to take care of children. And Claire is the type of person that for all the hard work she does, for all the care that she gives other people, she's not self-conscious about it. It's not something she thinks about. She doesn't brag about it. She just does it. And I think Clara, if anyone, is really the true hero of this book if there's like a classical hero type. And that's why I think the book in, in many ways is so modern in Larry McMurtry, if, you know, if basically if Call, if the captain has an image of himself in his head that he's always trying to live up to, which is like the noble hero, the the man's man, the person who comes the closest to honoring that image is actually Clara. Clara is the one person who who matches what are all these sort of um, antiquated ideas of what a man is supposed to be, which is hardworking, faithful, true, selfless, noble, brave. Clara has all of these qualities and seemingly almost no flaws. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I love the character of Clara. Uh, just that even though she was strong, she still ha- she did still have her weakness with her sons. Sons were dying. And in one of the more tragic scenes, like July Johnson falls in love with her but he has he's still so uh so shell-shocked about what happened to him uh losing his deputy and uh the his adopted son that he's kind of like having a hard time relate to clara um and i think at one point clara like propositions him like she's like i, I might marry you someday if you want it Am I getting that right, or am I misremembering it in some no, way? No, I think you got it wrong. Is that basically she knows he's in love with her. They're basically raising a kid together. It's not her kid. It's July's kid, but she's going to be the mother of this of this child. And what she basically knows is that if July just was a little bit smoother and a little bit more like Gus, 
circumstances by themselves would force these two together because they're living together and they're raising a child together. But July is such a dolt. He's just so unsmooth. He has no, you know, women just don't like this guy. There's something about this guy that annoys women. It's it may be a neediness on his part, a clinginess in uh, sort of a lack of ability to read the signals that women give. And she just grows so frustrated with him. And at one point, his own kid gets really sick with a fever. And this is like a really traumatic thing for Clara because every son that she raises eventually gets a dangerous fever. And while she's tending to July's son, who's basically her son as well, July just like doesn't help her. He just kind of like leaves the room and leaves her to it. And she's like, dude, like this was your opportunity to like be with me, help me and like grow your estimation in my eyes. And he just fails that test. Like it was a test and he failed it. And my question, Sean, actually to you is, do you think those two are ever going to get together? I, I don't think so because that the, the child being sick meant so much to her that when she needed comforting, like the only time in the novel that you see a weakness in her when she, I think she like goes to embrace uh, July and July like returns the embrace, but then like quickly speeds off to his room. I think when she's rebuffing him later, she's like, what, did you immediately go to your room and start planning our wedding and you left me with a dying child? I don't think he's ever going to get enough esteem to get a woman like Clara to even do like a, a commonwealth marriage. And I think it speaks volumes, the fact that Clara is like the upstanding, noble, best, best parts of the West. And she absolutely hates Captain Call. Like, yeah. does not like him at all. <laughs> like, if that's the biggest character judgment on any of the other characters, is that Clara, the woman that'll, like, bend over backward to help anybody in need, just has no love in her heart for Call. Like, just absolutely hates him. It's just so damning towards Call. But I, I don't think I could ever see him get back together. I think uh, uh, Dish has a better chance at ending up with Clara at this point. Well, that's if he kind could of ever issue. pull himself that's, away. Yeah, that's kind of the issue of the book is that everybody's in love with somebody who's in love with somebody else. Dish is in love yeah. with... Or so, like, Clara kind of has a crush on Dish. Dish has a crush on Lori. Lori's in love with Gus. And, you know, and, and July's in love with Clara. Like, somebody wants someone who doesn't want them but wants something else. And the only thing that can make it... Co- like, the only way they can make it come full circle is if for some reason Gus was in love with July. <laughs> like that, that would, <laughs> yeah. that would close the loop. Um, all right, Sean. So we're coming to the end of this thing. I just want to ask you a question. Um, you watched the first three episodes of the miniseries after you read this book. What did you think about the miniseries in general? I, I thought they were great. Um, and when I was kind of referring back as I was reading the novel itself, it's like, I don't think they missed a lot. I don't think the character Will Barger, who I liked was in there. That incident with Roscoe and the woman is not in uh, the the miniseries because I guess those are things you could cut out and they're not, you know, plot central. Um, but yeah, it kind of does have a happy-go-lucky, let's go on an adventure kind of yeah. tone as opposed to, like, these men that are just searching for something. You know, one last hurrah, some final act that'll justify the past 50 years of their life. Uh that you're right it the the miniseries does kind of romanticize it and i think especially with the miniseries that every episode 
it ends with that like they take the last shot of the show and they turn it into like that old timey tinny type like mm-hmm. that that sepia tone photograph which you can get on like any boardwalk like in Maryland or New Jersey uh, I think that's pretty corny but other than that I don't think the miniseries uh, did injustice to the book I think it you know only makes it more accessible because if you're going to give somebody most people on the street an option between reading a 980 page novel or sitting through a four hour miniseries I think 90% of people will be like yeah I'll watch the miniseries but yeah. would balk at the idea of reading the book. So speaking, for everybody speaking that's Sean, listening. Yeah, please watch the last episode, Sean. Please, please, please finish that miniseries because the last episode is really the best episode. Okay. Um, I think as closing thoughts, uh, I just have the my favorite line in the book is uh, Blue Duck when he's talking with Gus and Gus uh, lets Blue Duck get close so he could water the horse and take a drink himself. And Gus is like, oh, that's, so he says something like, oh, that's great water there. Nice and cold and sweet. And Blue Duck just looks at him and says something along the lines of, he's like, I only care if it's wet. He goes, I like it wet. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I was like, that line crosses my mind like twice a day. Anytime I go for like a glass of water, like, I like it wet. And also Blue Duck, his ending to his story is fantastic. Yeah, you can tell it. Uh, yeah. So they catch Blue Duck. They put him on trial. And uh, the captain just happens to be passing through the town where they caught him. And he goes and he talks with Blue Duck and he, Blue Duck boasts about everything that he did. And then he eventually confesses to the captain that uh, a witch uh, blessed him with the spirit of a bird and of flight. And he's like, I'm never, like, I'm, you'll see me fly tomorrow when they try to kill me. And, you know, captain's just like, okay, whatever. And they go to hang him. And they're going to hang him in the new courthouse building, which is a three-story building with these big gaudy glass windows on the front. But they've erected the scaffold on the top of the third floor, on the roof, essentially. And so uh, the whole town is gathered for this, and like probably some people from neighboring towns. And they bring blue ducks and chains under an armed guard. And uh, as they're leading him through the building, you lose sight of him. But out of nowhere blue duck comes flying through i think like the third story window holding the fat uh, deputy that caught him by sheer luck and they both plummet to the ground and i believe blue duck immediately or blue duck doesn't die immediately because he says something to the captain like i told you you'd see me fly (laughs) and like he cripples the deputy and making him like uh, a cripple for the rest of his life i was just like that is such a night like you only see Blue Duck for one part of the story, but then to give him like a big send off at the end, I don't think there's any better way to put a, a ribbon on that type of like, oh, well, what happened to that character? It also speaks to that character's nobility because he dies once again on his own terms. He dies the way taking, he lived yeah. his life. He, he does it on his own terms. He's not going to allow someone to do it to him. Um, my two, In closing for me... Um, my two favorite lines from the book, and this, and this is a book that's basically written like a script in many ways. Like, you could not make better dialogue for a movie. Um, but they both basically happen in the Jake Spoon's hanging scene. The first line I already said, which is, I didn't see no line, Gus. I was just trying to get through the territories with my scalp. I just love that line so much. Um, because Jake 
just honestly doesn't understand why he's on this horse. He doesn't understand why he's about to get hanged. He just he didn't see the line. He doesn't know where it occurred, where he where he crossed over into the territory of deserving to get hanged. And then the other line is, uh, before this occurs, they're about to hang the leader of the gang, who's just a complete psycho. And this guy is just like, he's just basically foaming at the mouth. He's telling all these guys he's going to kill them all and, you know, what, what faithless bastards they are. And then just Gus says to him, he goes, he goes, you know, it's he says something like he's like he's like it's words like that that make a man like you a pleasure to hang. He just slaps the horse <laughs> off, out from under the guy and kills him. It's just so good. Like it's just it's such a delight for him to hang this guy. It's, it's just like you know taking in like a Saturday afternoon movie. Like what a great way to spend the day just hanging some psycho. Um, just you know my last thoughts on this book. You just can't go wrong reading a book like this. Like this is one of those books. It only gets better and better as you keep reading it. I found myself more and more engrossed as it kept going that by the end, I really could have read another 900 pages. I think in the beginning, the first 200 pages, those are the ones you got to get through. They spend a long time in Lonesome Dove before they embark on their journey. But once Mm -hmm. you get past those first 200 pages, things really pick up. It's kind of startling how long the first 200 pages are versus the next 700 pages sean any last words for you yeah uh it, it is kind of it, they do spend a lot of time establishing the world establishing who these main characters are but i think if you listen this far that you can see that both you and i like the book for not entirely different reasons but we both have different takes on you know how the book presents itself so i think it's that kind of versatile where it's so it's such a straightforward kind of narrative, but it has so much going on that I think any reader that picks it up should be able to find something that they can latch on to and will really get a lot, a lot of pleasure and entertainment out of reading this book. So I definitely highly recommend it. It is a fantastic read and a good suggestion. Okay, Sean, I want to start a new uh, tradition here on this podcast. Um, because we record this every two to three weeks to give us enough time to read the next book, I think we should actually tell the listeners what our next book is going to be so that they can pick it up if they haven't read it and read it in that time that we're reading it as well. So why don't you tell them what the next one is? All right. So uh, for the next book, uh, we're going from extremely long to very, very short. Uh, It's The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon. This was the book that I read in, I think I was 20. And this was the book that really ignited my love for reading. Like that showed me that uh, the novels and fiction could be something completely than I'd ever expect. It just blindsided me, blew me away. The reason we have this podcast today is because of my love of this book. So that's The Crying of Lot 49. Can't wait to talk about it with you. Awesome. Good talking to you, Sean. I'll see you in about two to three weeks. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Uh, 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 uh.